This is Dr. Rob Harder with the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, making your world better. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? What are the biggest challenges? What are the biggest obstacles? How should nonprofits fundraise in an economy that is constantly changing? All of these reasons combined led me to start this show. And it's my hope that through this series, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear from effective leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy the show as together we hear how they are making their world better. I've had several guests on the show to talk about the work they are doing with diversity, equity, and inclusion. Well, today my guest is one who has dedicated her work to the same important focus area of diversity, equity, inclusion. And in particularly this month, it's relevant because August is Black Philanthropy Month. My guest today is Dr. Shara Reed. She's the co-executive director of the Center of Evaluation and Innovation, or CEI. She will share today about how we can help transform philanthropy into a force that actually advances racial equity and justice. Enjoy today's show. Well, Shara, it's great to have you on the show today. Now, for my listeners, you may not be aware of this, but this is Black Philanthropy Month, and that's one of the reasons I brought Shara on the show today. And Shara, I'm really excited to have you on the show to share a lot of your experience and your perspective. You have dedicated yourself to help transform philanthropy into a force, really, that actually advances racial equity and justice. So maybe just to start, what led you into this work, first of all? Yeah, so thanks for having me on the show, Rob. You bet. And I have a little story to tell which goes back about two decades. So 20 years ago, almost to the date, I met this really brilliant woman named Dr. Lydia English. And she worked at the Mellon Foundation in New York City. She was my program officer when I worked at a nonprofit program called the Institute for Recruitment of Teachers. And that's at Phillips Academy, which is also known as Andover, Massachusetts. And I, from the start, admired the way that Lydia showed up wholly in her body and in her truth. So Lydia was a person who spoke truths. She spoke them clearly. She spoke them directly. And when Lydia spoke, people listened. And for me, earlier in my career, I heard her speaking truths that I also thought, but I didn't feel empowered to say out loud. And so I'll give an example. Uh, one year, it's, I think this was around 20, 2006, we had a convening and we always got a little convening gift bag. And the one thing in the bag that year was copies of Barack, Senator Barack Obama's new book, The Audacity of Hope, right? And so if you remember that book, it's a book about this vision for what our democracy could be from like this like state senator who has just done an amazing job giving the keynote at the Democratic National Convention. And so he was really just beginning to be known a little bit nationally at that time. But Lydia saw him and Lydia was imagining into a future, right? And inviting us to dream into that. And so Lydia is the person who really desired, uh, who really sparked my desire to work in philanthropy. So this brilliant, unapologetically Black woman speaking truths, leading work that is like trying to bring out the best in people and the best in our democracy 
and supporting that genius of Black people, of Brown people. I wanted to be like Lydia. And so I made this mental note back in the early 2000s that one day maybe I would have a career stop in philanthropy. And if anything, for me, the thing that surprised me was that opportunity came sooner than I expected. I love that story. That's so fun to to hear what prompts people to go into the field they actually end up going into, and particularly with what you're doing. It's such important work. Thank you for that. Love that. Now, over Mm -hmm. the past few years, especially, philanthropy has Mm -hmm. experienced an awakening, I would say, regarding the amount of significant commitments specifically to support Black voices and Black-led organizations. But there's still a long way to go. And so for many foundations, they're still struggling to make racial equity an integral part of their work. So from your experience, why is this the case, do you think? It's because racial justice is the strategy, right? So trying to make it and make racial equity part of a bigger part of the work is isolating it, right? It is the work of putting it really at the core making it our core concern is what we actually need. It's the top line and then everything else follows, right? And so one of the things I have experienced and really seen as a challenge in this work is bringing a race forward lens. So some people believe that when you talk about race, it means you're only talking about Black people and white people, right? And that every other racial identity, including mixed race identities, bi-ethnic, bi-racial identities, all fall to the wayside. Some people, when they hear race, believe that that means we don't care about class, or we don't care about gender, or we're disregarding disability, you know, and, and any number of identities. But that's not what it is, right? Good point. Racial justice, right? It's intersectional. And the reason we have to lead with race is because in this country, people, right? Many ancestors, people created racial hierarchy, right? You know, Isabel Wilkerson talks about it as caste, right? And it's a really uncomfortable truth, but we have to name race. We have to be in this place where we have to acknowledge an uncomfortable truth so that we can get to the whole, right? So when racial justice isn't our strategy, it often is what gets marginalized which is why I think it's often a struggle for any number of foundations who believe that they can do this small thing called racial equity and otherwise do business as usual. I really appreciate you saying that. And you know, as I think back historically, I would say the last 50 to 60 years specifically, from your perspective, what are the major milestones when there's been significant shifts in the nonprofit sector specifically, again, because we're talking about nonprofit leaders here, towards recognizing the need for greater diversity and greater focus on racial justice. Can you pick out a few of those key things in the last 50 to 60 years? Yeah, that's a good, it's a good question. And I I believe that the nonprofit sector really reflects our society's challenges and opportunities. So perhaps those of us who work in nonprofits, and this is true for myself, I tend to be pretty uh, hopeful. And it's not to say not grounded in realism and hopeful, right? I believe that our institutions and systems could transform. I believe they can be equitable. I believe they can be just, right? And so when I think about major milestones over the last 50 or 60 years around what, what's influencing centering of racial justice and nonprofit, they're actually Supreme Court cases, believe it or not. 
So the two that come to mind for me are affirmative action. And I just would take our take your listeners to one of my favorite books, which I read way back when, when I was a grad student uh, at University of Michigan. And it's The Shape of the River. Mm, it's okay. uh, William Bowen and Derek, mm-hmm. and, uh, Derek Fox book. And so it's this long-term look at what happened in this country over 20 plus years when we had the institution of race-sensitive admissions in public higher education. And so it is a book about education, sure. It is also a book really about the shaping of the America that we live in today. So my parents' generation, right? So this would be a lot of the boomers, folks, you know, the boomers. When the boomers were going to college or some of the older Gen X folks were going to college, what happened? And what happened for those who went to college to these public universities, these are your Penn State, your Ohio State, your University of Michigan's, Michigan State's, those Black folks, Latinx folks, Native folks who got to college, when they graduated, 20 years out, people were seeking out racially, economically integrated neighborhoods. People vote. People are civically uh, involved, civically minded, right? And so these are people who integrated working in the post office. These are people who went and taught in our public schools, right? These are people who are changing conversations and perceptions about who we are as a country and who we could be, right? And so nonprofits are mirroring that, right? And then I give one more example, which is Roe versus Wade, 1973. Almost three quarters of the nonprofit workforce are women. This didn't happen overnight, right? And so why not us? Those of us who have a generation ago had access to affirmative action, race-sensitive, at least, admissions in public colleges and universities. Those of us who, up until very recently, had access to reproductive justice, we are the workforce in nonprofit organizations. We have benefited from the Supreme Court decisions and the legacies of those who came before us. So to me, it's, I look at these, these broader, sort of broader policies and trends in our democracy as to why does the nonprofit sector look the way it looks now and why, why are we focused increasingly on issues of racial justice? No, thanks for that. And, and uh, I'm going to give some notes to my listeners about your organization a bit, but tell us more about your work and your role at CEI. What all you, are you involved with and why is it critical for the sector to center racial equity in your work? Yeah, so uh, the Center for Evaluation Innovation, where I'm the co-executive director, is a woman-led nonprofit organization. And our mission is to partner with philanthropy to provide change makers the space and the resources needed to advance racial justice and create an equitable future. Um, And so CEI is a justice organization. CEI is an organization that um, does its work through research, strategy, and partnership. And so we are, we bring philanthropic organizations, networks together, so people can build the relationships, the capabilities they need to bring racial equity and justice ideals to life. So I often say that our work is about 
partnering with philanthropy to close the gap between what organizations say and what they do. I like that. Well, tell us about some of the wins you have seen in your organization so far. And likewise, do you have an example of a recent win with, they say, a large foundation or nonprofit Mm -hmm. that you've been working with that is really making significant progress with diversity and inclusion? Sure. Well, I just start by saying our work is, it's a really privileged place to be. Yeah. Because as a nonprofit that is mission-driven, we get to work and really partner with many people and organizations who are motivated, Mm -hmm. right? To center racial equity, to center racial justice. And so that is a boom for us. And so I can tell the story of a recent win around putting racial justice at the center of our work. And so earlier this year, we co-hosted an event with the Trust-Based Philanthropy Project. And so for listeners who may not know about trust-based philanthropy, this is a growing call and a growing network of philanthropic organizations that's actually started as a number of smaller, so family, family funds, regional organizations, to really say, but what would it look like if we put trust at the center of our practices? So there are six principles of trust-based philanthropy. And we partner with Trust-Based Philanthropy Project to lift up one of their juiciest questions, one of the biggest stumbling block questions for why don't people do, why wouldn't you do trust-based philanthropy? Mm-hmm. And it's about learning and impact. Like, mm. How are we going to know? Like, if we, if we put trust at the center, will we be able to learn? What would impact me in this context? Well, we gave this question back to our networks. We had over 500 people who attended the live event And we had three foundation CEOs speak about why learning is a priority in their organizations, what it looks like. And importantly, they were really candid and fairly vulnerable about talking about successes and challenges. And we presented an emerging framework at that event as well that is around learning in a trust-based context. And since then, we've continued to have really strong interest and the insight from this emerging framework. And so it feels like a real win to us because, again, going back to this question of what people in their organization say and what people do, this is how we start to really close the gap between the ideals and the actions. I like that. That's interesting. Thanks for giving us a little bit of background of that trust philanthropy and, and the uniqueness of that. Now, this is a good platform for you to share with hundreds of nonprofit leaders that tune in as to what you would like nonprofits to do in light of your work. So further, um, what would be the most important steps for leaders to take today to start becoming catalysts for change, if you will, in their nonprofit organization or in the nonprofit sector as a whole? What would you say is that uh, first step or the first and most important two or three steps? Yeah, well, uh, thanks for that invitation. And I have two. Okay. So I'll share one that's about being. And one that's about doing. I like it. So being. I would invite everyone listening in who works in nonprofit, works in philanthropy, to be themselves. Bring yourself to work. Model what it looks like to lead from a place where you can own your experience. Hear your lived experience as an asset. Um, you know, earlier I talked a little about the inspiration that I draw from Dr. Lydia English. She's a person who I learned from 
you know, so that I can be sitting where I am today. And so if we are leaders and nonprofit organizations, we are somebody's Lydia English, right? We are people who are speaking, who are doing, and people are watching us and we can inspire people to step into who they were meant to be. So I say, be yourself, show up as yourself. And then the second one is about doing. Here we go. Get some rest. Take something off your calendar. Take something off your to-do list. Right? If you're a nonprofit leader, and this is really well documented, Building Movement Project, Nonprofit Quarterly, Echoing Green have documented well that leaders of color in particular and nonprofit organizations, Black leaders, Black women leaders are doing more with less. We work in organizations often that have fewer fungible, flexible resources. We often work in organizations that are not endowed organizations, right? Which we know how hard historically it has been and continues to be to raise unrestricted dollars. Get some rest. So we're probably doing too much. I'm probably doing too much. You're probably doing too much. And I say this with love because I know the things that we work on, they're urgent, often they're important, right? And so I I say, get some rest, lighten your load where you can, delegate, take something off your to-do list. Um, mm -hmm. That's excellent. No, I appreciate that focus on rest and reflection. I don't think that a lot of people are telling us to do that because you're right, the, the task list continues to grow. The urgency of issues that we're dealing with in the nonprofit sector are high. So well said. I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. Unique Rob, perspective. I'll add one more thing. Go ahead. You bet. Sure. So I wanted to just to give an example of what that looks like in my organizational context. You got it. Perfect. Yeah. So one of the things that we started uh, this year, first time, we've been around for 13 years. We start our year with independent study. And... That's taking a cue, yes, from the academy. You know, students often have a longer break or a J term. You can do an immersion. You might go abroad, take a course that you really wanted to take, but otherwise maybe it didn't fit into your schedule. And so at CEI, we take the first two weeks of January, not as a time off, but a time on for independent study. And so our colleagues have taken a course, people have gone spent time in museums, being inspired by, you know, visual art. People have caught up on their reading. People have rested, right? And so what we ask everyone to do is do what it is and be as you need to be in a way that will support you so that when we return to our organizational routines, you will welcome it, right? You welcome it. You are rested. You are rejuvenated and ready to go. So that would be another piece that I would encourage folks to consider. Where are the places in their day-to-day as nonprofit leaders? What can you model? What are some routines that you might adopt for your whole team, importantly, to take a pause? Well, that is a great segue into my next question. I remember really distinctly late in 2020, especially after the George Floyd protests and the subsequent conversations and discussions we were all having at that time. Some of my friends who are leaders in the Black community here communicated to me that they were really tired, like really tired, uh, tired of the fight a bit because this was not new for them. Now, it just so happened 
all of us were talking about, I think, in the last in 2020 into 2021. But most of them have been standing up and fighting for racial justice for a long time. And they also, I think there was a tinge of fearfulness that this latest movement of protest may not be a true lasting change systemically, you know, in organizations. So my question for you, and you're kind of getting to that from uh, your previous question, how do you guard yourself against fatigue or even cynicism that things will not change as quickly that you'd like? Yeah, well, first I believe them. If they said they were tired and they told you they were tired, they're tired. Yeah. And they have reason to be skeptical that change is going to be lasting Um, because our American history tells us so. They have reasons to believe that. And for myself, I don't so much guard myself against fatigue or cynicism. I recognize that this work is about remaking the world. That's not a small statement or a small set of tasks. There's no checklist. Mm -mm, That's right. Right? Remaking the world. There's going to be a lot of ups and downs. And this will also be intergenerational work, right? And so we have to do both the short work and the long work, right? Short work, what you can see today, why racial justice is the strategy. What are the approaches we're doing, taking today? What are we trying out? What's our experimentation? How can we learn quickly? Who do we need to be in relationship with? Long work, imagining the future. Lydia English putting the state senator's book in a conference bag and saying, I think this might be the future. This might have something to do with the future. Long work, right? And so for me, I am practicing pacing and rest Hmm. more than I ever have consciously before so that I can be cognizant, present to both my short work and my long work. So it is resting more. It is creating space. And so one example that I'll give is this. I spent a week recently out in Vermont at Knoll Farm. And I was a participant in a fellowship called Better Selves. Hmm. And Better Selves is an individual fellowship opportunity for Black people, people of color, and their allies who uh, work in social and racial justice practice. And it was uh, a fellowship that was created at Knoll Farm in 2017. The owners asked their community around them, their network, what do you need? And folks said, We need time and space. And so it is a fellowship for the individual that is time and space with radical hospitality. And so Better Selves Fellows are not asked to perform. I was not asked to perform. So we experience being in relationship with ourselves, asking ourselves our bigger questions. We were in relationship with the land and we were in relationship with one another. And so I really believe that for those of us in this long work of remaking the world, we have to care for ourselves. We have to care for each other. We rise up, we rest, and we're in relationship with one another, and we're in relationship with our land. Sounds like a wonderful experience. It was fabulous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wonder, yeah. 
Excellent. Thanks for sharing that. I, yeah, I have a feeling that people may say, reach out to you and say, what? Tell me more about that Vermont retreat. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of that, I know my listeners always enjoy reaching out to the guests I have on the mm-hmm. show. So how best could they reach out to you and find out more about CEI? Sure. So we're on Twitter at eval underscore innovation and also on LinkedIn. And then our web address is evaluationinnovation.org. And something to know about us is you do not need to be an evaluator or a learning professional in nonprofit to connect with us. All of our resources are open source. They're all free to download. Good to know. Excellent. Well, Shira, thanks again for sharing your insights with us. And thanks for the important work you're doing. Thank you. Hey, friends. Well, I wanted you to know that this podcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Google Podcasts, and wherever you listen to other podcasts. I also want to encourage you to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with others. This will actually help us get this great content out to more nonprofit leaders just like you. You can also join the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast community, find other resources and interviews of past guests all on my website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Well, thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep making your world better.